0: are you interested in free theological training our flagship sponsor midwestern seminary offers free theological training through their for the church institute this semester they launched three new classes new testament one and new testament two with dr patrick schreiner and missional leadership with dr charles smith both have been guests of the show These classes, along with others, they offer the story of everything with Jared Wilson, the Trinity with Dr. Matthew Barrett, and more are all free and accessible to you, your community group, or your church to complete at your own pace. You can learn more and sign up to begin at mbts.edu slash knowingfaith. Again, that's mbts.edu slash knowingfaith for some free theological training from Midwestern Seminary. Go check it out.
1: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
0: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. What's up?
1: Kyle, you're just so good at being the glue. Thanks for being the glue.
0: No doubt. Thanks, Kyle. You know what? I am, I'm glad to be here. Glad to be the glue or the, uh, the pitch you Know uh, the, uh, the
1: bitumen and pitch, Yeah, that's yeah. Like
0: I'm, it. We're that's where we're at in the story of scripture with my daughter right now. So, um, I had to tell her that like pitch was like glue, but old. That's what I told her. <laughs> Which that's when you're seeing when you're explaining the Bible to your ch- children, sometimes you just go with simple and reductionistic. And I went with it's like old glue, is what mm-hmm. I told her from so, days of yore,
1: it yes, is your. Yes, there we go.
0: Glue, yeah, your glue. Um, okay, so on this episode, we're talking about the law, specifically the Ten Commandments. But we're going to use the Ten Commandments to to try to create a, a paradigm that we'll then bring into consideration of the rest of the law codes that we find in Exodus. Uh, What's happening? I was, I had to burp, <laughs> Kyle,
2: I had uh, to burp
0: <laughs> some <laughs> issues. <laughs>
1: I had to burp and I didn't want to burp into the. Thank you. Yeah, yes, so. all of us say thank you. <laughs> yes.
0: Um, okay, okay. Moving past that, uh, <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna talk about the Ten Commandments. Specifically, um uh the way that our understanding of the Ten Commandments and our understanding of the law. Um I I I think genuinely there is there's is as much misunderstanding of the law codes in the Pentateuch as there is of anything else in the rest of the Bible. And I think that it's, I think the confusion exists there and I think we can bring clarity to it. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to put Jen on the spot because she wrote a book <laughs> on the topic and I'm going to have, Jen, would you read Exodus 20 versus one through, I'm going to give you a lot here. Let's go one through 17.
1: Okay. I feel like I can do it.
0: Okay. Okay. You might call the, the these 10 commandments, the 10 words. <laughs>
1: you might, you might, okay. if you, if you want to, if you wanted to. Okay. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you you shall not murder you shall not commit adultery you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor you shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's that's it right there we go
0: yep okay I always love it uh, I always love that the Ten Commandments end with donkeys and oxes
1: yep yeah, you know? we're all off the hook because nobody covets those. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I've thought about. It's like on a high that. note. Yep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey. Okay.
0: Here's my hot take. I want to. I want to start with a hot take, uh, which some of you will know. I am want to do. Um, I don't think the Ten Commandments <laughs> should be recited or posted without verse two ever.
1: I don't think that's a very hot take. What? Okay. It's not a. Hot, <laughs> it's not a hot take. I don't know, maybe I've been swimming in these waters too long. But to me, I'm like, of course we wouldn't separate those. Well, but I you're think saying that, that they are posted without it, right? Yeah, I mean, like,
0: I've yeah. seen lots of pictures of the Ten Commandments. I've seen lots of artistic renderings of the Ten Commandments that don't include verse 2. Mm-hmm. And I know that verse 2 is not a commandment. But I actually think verse two's presence is the fundamental way to understand the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Right? Okay, I'm going
2: like, to play devil's advocate here. First of all, tell tell me why you think it's fundamental.
0: Yeah. Because before the 10 commandments are given to the people, after everything that Israel has already seen, after Exodus 19 where you get a retelling of Israel's deliverance, even after they've experienced it, they've seen it, God has told them that, they've sang songs about it, right before he gives them the law code, he once again says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Like, I think it's significant because if we understand the Ten Commandments as the means by which Israel belongs to God and covenant and is deserving of his rescue, then we fundamentally misunderstand the Ten Commandments. The law is not given so that Israel can be God's people. The law is given to Israel because they are God's people. He doesn't Mm -hmm. shout the law down at them when they're still making bricks without straw in Egypt and says, try this out for a hundred years and maybe I'll come get you. He he rescues (laughs) them. He brings them out of Egypt, like not even just like right outside the gates. He brings them across Mm -hmm. the sea. He brings them to the mountain of Abraham's covenant. And then he says, hey, Remember, I delivered you when you cried out to me because of my covenant love for you. Mm-hmm. So then,
2: live this way, and I yeah. think that's significant, especially. So you're saying the law is only applicable to Israel?
0: No, that's not what I'm saying. That's,
2: that's, that's exactly what you just said.
0: That's and not no, what no, I'm no. saying. You said,
2: okay, that I, want, I don't want to misunderstand you. Why? Why would we need that if, if it's not applicable to people who didn't who didn't experience that?
0: Because that's our story too. So, so it's so only for Christians. No, I'm saying it's a both and, not an either or. I don't know why you're driving this home, but it's not. Israel's story is our story. Our story is Israel's story. This account right here is a picture of how salvation works, not just for Israel and this Would you time ever in this just place.
2: Say the Ten Commandments to somebody else who who this isn't their story. No, wait. Well, I mean, say that I mean again? like not like just like recite them, but just say God has a law and you've broken it, and here's what it is.
0: Yes, I would say that, but I would certainly not say it without the promise beginning and end that the rescue that God has for us isn't conditional on law keeping. Just because we've broken a law that that God has doesn't mean that his rescue is contingent on our ability to keep that law. It's not, nor was Israel's rescue contingent on that. Israel's rescue was contingent on grace and covenant and grace and covenant that preceded the giving of the law by a long period of time, nor was Abraham's covenant with God contingent on uh, Abraham's obedience to Yahweh, his enjoyment of all those blessings was, but not his participation in it.
2: I'm trying to think through, through, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I said I was going to play mm-hmm. devil's advocate. I'm trying to think through this in, through Romans three, and and Paul's Paul's talking about are the Jews better off because they're recipients of the law? No, the whole world is under God's judgment. Under God's law, says uh, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks of those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world can become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in the sight by works of the law, because knowledge of sin comes through the law. Mm-hmm. This really goes to the purposes of the law, which is one of your questions: like what 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 is it for? Mm-hmm. Uh, And I was just maybe pushing a little bit. It's not, it can't be just for God's people. It's also a mirror to recognize I'm not a part of God's people. Sure.
1: Well, I think arguably what the statement in verse two is accomplishing is not just the identifying of his immediate audience, but of the state of mind in which we receive the law. So in other words, he's not reminding them of who he is so that they can remember, oh, right, we're Israel and you're God, so much as he's saying, um, I am worthy of right reverence based on what you know of me. And the reason I would say that is because after the Ten Commandments are given, we get kind of this reframing or this circling back to what I think is the idea that's captured in verse two, where uh, Moses says in verse 20 of chapter 20, do not fear for for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. And I think what verse 2 is doing is saying if the fear of him is before you then you will not sin. You will, and and by fear I mean right reverence like that and when they remembering his, when they remember his towering deliverance that happened coming out of Egypt it should inspire in them right motive for wanting to obey his laws. In other words, he's showing that you know I'm going to go to my 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 life first fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The person who walks wisely recognizes that God's law is something that is for good, not for harm or for limitation. And so in that sense, anyone who has the fear of the Lord, Jew or Gentile, wants to obey these laws because they are demonstrably good based on the one who gave them. So I don't see it as like, hey, I'm identifying you as my nation so much as it is like, I'm telling you who I am. And if Mm -hmm. I am who I said I am, then You should want to obey these laws um, because you would walk in fear before me.
0: Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree. And there is a sense in which the Ten Commandments are an unfolding of the natural law that has been inscribed on our hearts. What uh, mm-hmm. what you're getting at in Romans 3 is a continuation right. of what we find in Romans 1, right? That what happens in the giving of the law and the Ten Commandments, the reason why we get these little snapshots or symbols or pictures of the law, it wasn't when we got to Exodus 20 that all of a sudden God was like, you know what? It'd probably be good if they didn't steal yeah. it. <laughs>
1: Stealing's now bad. Yeah, stealing. I think stealing's <laughs> bad now. When Before, I created the was world, fine. I was yeah. fine with stealing, mm-hmm.
0: but now yeah. not so much. The, yeah. the natural, the the Ten Commandments are uh, kind of a they're a telling of what it was true even before the Ten Commandments were given, which is that mm-hmm. there is only one true God. And we talked about this a little bit in our live recording at TGC, which will come out in the weeks ahead. Um, but one of the things that's important to remember is that the uses of the law are, there's at least, I mean, we talk about three uses of the law, right? We talk about the law as a mirror um, uh, for us to see. It's a picture of God's holy character. It's a mirror for us of our uh, sinful and it is a tutor to us in the ways of God, right? Those are the three purposes of the law, uh, mm-hmm. that it shows us our imperfections. It shows us God's perfections and it
2: shows us the way of wisdom in God's world. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think I actually have a different understanding of, of the three. Okay. But maybe I'm wrong. And if, if I'm wrong here, let's just cut it out. But let's I've always I've always heard that the three purposes were first a pedagogical use, like it, that's what you're talking about, Kyle, mm-hmm. a mirror, and we mm-hmm. learned a couple of things. We learned the holiness, righteousness of God, and then we also learn the brokenness and sinfulness of ourselves and our need for Christ. That's that's uh, how you were talking about it. But then there's the civil use of the law. Right. The civil use of the law is a, is as a means to restrain evil. The law mm-hmm. itself can't change our hearts, but it does uh, protect, uh, societies against, uh, kind of spiraling into anarchy. And that's Mm -hmm. what God's given to them.
1: It brings order out of chaos. Yep. Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: exactly. And then the normative use of the law, which is to reveal what pleases God. That's kind of similar to using the law pedagogically, but it really shows us more as now as God's children, delight in the law of God, because God delights in the law and ethics. Mm
1: -hmm. What did you say, Kyle? I
2: thought I said that. When I heard Kyle, I I, I could have just heard you differently. I heard you talking specifically about the pedagogical use, and I didn't Uh hear civil use.
0: No, you're right. No, maybe I, yes. Okay,
2: yes. You're right. And that's more what I was, even kind of going back to the the conversation we were having a minute ago where I was playing devil's advocate, is I think the civil use of the law. Of course, I want verse two there too. This devil's advocate, mm-hmm, but it's also just can be used as a as a as a tutor to to civilly help organize society or, or family around goodness and ethics.
1: Well, and again, we need to place this giving of the law exactly where it fits into Israel's story, because as Kyle's right. already hinted at, it doesn't do any good to give the law of Yahweh to people who are enslaved to the gods of Egypt. They can't serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. And so now they are actually able to serve God as they were created to do. And so he gives them the law at this particular time. And it's given to them after what just happened in chapter 18, which is that a, a prototypical judging system was put in place. Judges mm-hmm. were put in place to help Moses. And so he forms the judicial system, and now he's going to fill it with law in chapter 20 in a, in a pattern that we've seen elsewhere in. Um, in Genesis and also in Exodus. So the law is given at a particular time for the formation of a civil society among the Israelites, that they would know how to live at peace with one another and to um, be a a well-ordered house of God.
0: Right. So the law here, there's been, um, the first half of the law deals with our relationship to God. Mm Mm-hmm right, the first half of the Ten Commandments, I should say, and the second half deal with our relationship to one another, is there a sense in which that is mirroring a little bit of the creation account? That the creating of like, we see this kind of frame of hmm. uh, God creates the space, and then it, he inhabits it. Is there is there anything there, Jen, I mean, I know you've looked at this a lot. You wrote a book on the topic, how much are we to make of this structure of the law? I mean, certainly the vertical dimension comes before the mm-hmm. horizontal. Um, what Luther famously said, any breaking of commandments two through nine is first a breaking of the right. first commandment um, right. that we should have no other gods before the one true God. Is there a reason? I mean, I, there must be why the first half of the Ten Commandments deals with our relationship with the God and the second half deal with our relationship with each other
1: yeah, sure. I mean, obviously, when we have issues relationally with one another, we tend to try to fix it only on the horizontal plane and we neglect to realize that the reason I haven't an, uh, uh, an issue with my neighbor is probably because there's something wrong in my vertical relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And so um, those two are always going to be interconnected. And I think that another way I've heard the law talked about, the Ten Commandments talked about, is that they're talking about submission. Yeah. All the way through, and so you move from submission to God in in one through four to submission to human authorities to to those who are elders in yeah. in experience or years or um, or authority. So that's father and mother, and we probably won't have time to get into that today, but it means more than just your mom and dad. Uh, if you go back to the the Westminster Confession, and then um, when you look at the rest of it, we're talking about submitting to one another, and so it. Pulls us right into the New Testament, where in the epistles you hear all of this: honor God, honor the emperor, or, you know, outdo one another in showing honor. Um, the whole idea is, if we would look for how to lay down our lives, then these would all fall into exactly where they should live. I think it's also significant. I was remembering um, when when I was working on the book, reading that the there are no existing law codes, like recorded law codes from Egypt. In Egypt, it does not appear that laws were written down. You would expect that based on the number of written evidences that we have of that society, that we would have records of written law. laws. And what the uh, person who was writing on this was saying was that because the law was not written down, it meant that people didn't always know what the law was. And Mm -hmm. that could be used against them when they came on trial for having committed a crime. Was it even really a crime? You know, that kind of a thing. And so the law in Egypt could be easily manipulated by earthly rulers to suit their own ends because it was not widely published. And yet here we have Yahweh doing something that completely flies in the face of Egyptian practice by being on record about exactly what his laws are. Uh, So I loved that. I thought that was a significant, and his laws are distinctly non-Egyptian and distinctly uh, non-Canaanite, you know, the way that he mentions even in like the Sabbath command, who is protected by the Sabbath command. And in the same way, in the way that he mentions in the um, the command about not coveting, like who it covers. And, and it goes into detail that you would not find in other law codes. The fact that women are mentioned is significant. The fact that animals are mentioned, you know, is significant. So um, everything about this law is unlike other laws. I shouldn't say everything. There are many similarities between this law code and other law codes of the time, but there are significant differences that mark the mm. people of God uh, and God himself out as, as different from the surrounding uh, cultures.
0: We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about Generosity. In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold.
2: Yeah, this is actually a really fascinating topic that I haven't spent time thinking about in a long time. But I spent a long time thinking about it when I was in seminary, uh, so I'm probably not cut up on all the literature. And there's actually a little bit of a danger to to what I'm about to say. There's there's a a group of evangelicals who have adopted what's called the trajectory hermeneutic and mm-hmm. basically what this means is, is we see a trajectory of God's ethics over the course of biblical history and a trajectory mm-hmm. that is contrasting uh, the law of Moses perhaps against the code of Hammurabi or mm-hmm. uh, other Hittite laws um, so one of the things that these scholars were saying is we, but th- so I don't subscribe to, uh, and you don't need to know about the trajectory hermeneutics doesn't matter that much right now, but what what is really important is what Jen just brought up, is how contrasted uh, God's law is from, for example, the Code of Hammurabi or other Assyrian or Hittite law codes because God's people are distinct. Like I think sometimes we can think nobody else had laws. Uh, they were all just living as total pagans. They had no orders mm-hmm. in, in their society. And it was Israel who first kind of got this law, and therefore yep. they're going to go be a light unto the nations. It's actually mm-hmm. not true at all. That Moses is very familiar with some of these other law codes. We can mm-hmm. tell because of how he is intentionally contrasting uh, Exodus and Leviticus and how God's people are supposed to live as a city situated upon a hill among the nations that are living in darkness.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yes.
0: And I do think that right there gets to something that we've talked about a lot in previous seasons and on previous episodes where we've had opportunity. The law is given in one sense to help shape the, the, the witness That Israel is to have among the nations, Mm -hmm. particularly as they enter into Canaan, Um, God is intending for them to be a contrast community, to Mm -hmm. be a, um, I think Michael Goheen calls them a showcase people, which I like. Um, I like that phrasing, that they're supposed to be a light to the nations. And part of that is going to be their moral witness. And I do think it's important to not minimize that this role of the law is significant, not just in the history of redemption, but it's significant now. This is one of the reasons why I think we should be talking more about the law, not less about the law in Christian circles, because I do believe that there is mm-hmm. a, there's a significant sense in which the law is given for a liturgical purpose. All of Israel's life is being reoriented around the presence of God that is going to take up dwelling in their midst. The Ten Commandments, all those codes you're going to read after this and the rest of Exodus about altars, because right after the Ten Commandments, which makes sense to us, very rarely do you <laughs> see weird. laws of laws about altars posted in courtrooms, you know what I'm saying? It's like right. that, they don't show up as much, right? Or how to clean your hands, right? Uh, these are things <laughs> that feel like, wait, what? But I actually think that it's significant for us. I, I don't think, when an Israelite thinks about seeing the presence of God descend on Sinai, when they think about that very same presence being in the middle of their camp, I don't think the law is too detailed. When you think <laughs> about the presence of Yahweh being in your midst and you've seen his power, I think, I don't think that it's a lack of imagination. That Israel has, or a lack of grace with themselves, um, that this law is so relevant and binding for them and so significant for their life. I think that if the presence of God is going to be in your midst, yeah, I'd want to know how to wash my hands.
1: So go back to the statement that you made because it's an important one, but I don't know that all of our listeners may maybe have listened long enough to be able to connect the idea. You said you think it is also, it serves a liturgical purpose. What do mm-hmm. you mean by that? You're, you're talking about it, but I want you to just really yeah. bring it home for people.
0: So Israel, so at this point, Israel is the, we can't forget where they're receiving it at. They're at the base of Sinai. Mm-hmm. The fire and smoke have led them out and now it's descending on the mountain. And this God... Holy God, who just judged Egypt, the most powerful empire in the world, brought him across the Red Sea, is about to say, build me a tent and put it in the middle of your camp. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm going to be right there with you. I'm going to dwell in your midst. And when I say that the law serves a liturgical purpose, liturgy is just ordered worship. That's all the word means. I know we think about liturgy sometimes as like uh, maybe if a church does a benediction, they're a liturgical church, or uh, if the church sings these kinds of songs versus these kinds of songs, they're a more liturgical church. We use that word that way. But the word just means ordered worship. The law is instructions for an ordered lifestyle of worship that is mm-hmm. centered all the time on the presence of Yahweh in the midst of his people. Mm -hmm. This is going to be true of the tabernacle. It's going to be true of Israel when they finally get to the land and are able to build the temple, that the whole idea is if the presence of God is going to be in your midst, it means you're going to be living in his presence at all times. And that affects everything. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I used to use this analogy, JT, I don't know if you remember this. I used to use this analogy when thinking about the law and the presence of God in the training program. If I was sitting in the living room, you know, Jen, if we were over at your house and we were having dinner and, and a dog walked into the living room and it wasn't your dog, like it was oh, a I big dog.
1: Say, this could actually happen, but not no, like
0: no, let's imagine it's not your dog. We're all okay. hanging out in your living room and a dog walks in. That's not your dog. And we all know it's not your dog our behavior probably changes a little bit because we don't know where this dog came from. The dog is unknown to us and has some level of power, right? Like a dog has some level of power. They have teeth. They, they can move. And let's just imagine now that we we don't know what to do with this dog. Our behavior, when the dog enters that room, it adjusts slightly. We, we have some questions, but if we're sitting in the same living room and a lion walks into the living room, still an animal, now all of a sudden it's like okay our behavior every little movement of of what we do is now calculated every little like micro movement of a finger every little wink every glance every turn of the head how loud we're breathing
2: who you push towards the lion
0: who smells the most like bacon exactly yeah everything becomes (laughs) significant you
2: can run the fastest
0: yep everything becomes significant when we look at the law codes of Israel and we look at the specificity of it, not just in the Ten Commandments, but beyond it with the extended code of law, we are seeing a we are seeing the reality that a lion is about to enter the midst of Yahweh and is well, going to dwell in their presence, and now everything has to change. Mm-hmm. Everything about their life has to change, and the Ten Commandments are a foretaste of that. They're a picture of that. They're just a sample of that, and we know that they endure, and they endure in a way that the rest of the law codes don't. That's clear in scripture, and it's clear in the natural law that we find in the world. Some of these were time-bound and contextual, but the reality is is that Israel is going to receive the presence of Yahweh in a way that they nobody has since the garden, but now the world is sick with sin. And everything has to be different now. It's not a casual mm-hmm. stroll with God in a sinless garden. It is a journey in the wilderness with the presence of Yahweh in a sin-sick world. And mm-hmm. everything has to change in light of that. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's what I mean by the liturgical use of the law. The law is not given so that Israel can belong to Yahweh. The law is given so that Israel can behave the right way around Yahweh.
1: That's mm-hmm. important. That's that's
0: really important.
1: And I think it's enduring significance and can experience his presence in exactly, this Exactly. Yeah. Exactly right. To the fullest, yeah.
0: Right, and that's why the law is still relevant for us today. Mm-hmm. That's why the calls for obedience are still significant for us today is because it is still the way that we can walk in close proximity to the presence of God mm-hmm. in a way that has the most minimal disruption and the maximum depth.
1: Yeah. I know we're headed to the New Testament, so mm-hmm. let me just drag us there really quickly. Yep. But like in you know in Galatians, it's called the law of Christ. Elsewhere, it's mm-hmm. called the law of love. And so when we hear um, the apostle John talking about, or actually it's Jesus' words in John's gospel, but then John reiterates it in his epistles, hey, the thing that's going to make you stand out is that you love each other. Yep. And so, right. and even in Galatians, it talks about how, We should pay particular attention. We should treat everyone according to the law of Christ, but particularly those within the family of God, because that's where it will be most evident. We will be most likely to have the most level of success because we're all rooting for the same things. Uh, and the same outcomes, but also that that's going to be the most compelling way that we can show people that we have a beautiful story, that we have the most beautiful story. And that goes back to Israel being, you know, as you were describing them, a light in the darkness, a city on a hill, which is the way that Jesus describes the New Testament church. Um, And so... I think a lot of times when we start thinking about the law and people say, well, I'm not under the law, I always am wondering, why would you not want... Now, I, I understand what they're saying. They don't want the judgment from the law to fall on them, and it doesn't, because Christ is the perfect law, law keeper on our, on our behalf. But the law is the way, our obedience to God's way of living in God's world is what shows is effectively loving one another that's what jesus says he boils it down to to its love for one another and so if we want to be known by our love for one another then by default we will obey the law of love toward one another um and and then also uh in the vertical plane as well and
2: yeah that's exactly right and I, i that phrase kind of bugs me sometimes too i'm no longer under the law though i understand what they're trying to say theologically but even more so okay let's just grant you're not under the law but the author of the law now dwells inside of you how do you mm-hmm. think yeah. how do you think how do you think he is wants to empower your life and That's live right. your life mm-hmm. the spirit of yeah. christ who wrote this law who is there at sinai authoring these words for moses is mm-hmm. now the tutor, the teacher, the counselor, mm-hmm. the one who's going to come to remind you all that's been said is now indwelling you, and he's not giving you kind of free will libertarianism so you can self express however you want. He's calling you to holiness and to walking mm-hmm. with God in deep ways.
0: Yeah, and, and and when and when the Word in flesh has the opportunity to talk about the law, he's not bad mouthing it. Nope. He, like the Sermon on the Mount makes no sense. It Mm -hmm. makes no sense Mm -hmm. apart from a strong belief that the principles of the law have a fulfillment that does not demolish them. Like like where Jesus is taking the principles of the law and intensifying them. He's bringing Mm -hmm. them even deeper. Why? He's not saying, hey, this is totally irrelevant. We should not be surprised at the same God who wrote the law who created the world in keeping with it, who perfectly fulfilled it in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who indwells us to this day, would lead us to believe that the law is the best way to walk in God's world. Now, we're not mm-hmm. held to its the, the power of the tyranny of it any longer, but it is still a helpful tutor. It's a helpful tutor and roadmap.
1: I got another one. <laughs>
0: Let's go! So,
1: you know, we're looking at all the New Testament um, comparisons, but also remember, you mentioned the Sermon on the Mount, so think about how the, the Gospel of Matthew portrays Jesus for us, building up to the Sermon on the Mount. We have his birth narrative. Um, and we have all of these parallels, to the Exodus story with the flight to Egypt and Herod um, killing the firstborn and all of these things that are echoes back to the story of Exodus. And then what happens? We see Jesus be baptized. So he passes through the waters and then he goes into the wilderness for his temptation and then comes uh, to the giving of the law in his own words on um, a mountain that's unnamed in the Sermon on the Mount. He, he rearticulates the law according to New Testament understanding for his listeners. And so Matthew is very much wanting us to connect Jesus talking about the law in the Sermon on the Mount to the giving of the law at Sinai, both in how it is similar and in how it is markedly different. Um, and so you see people cowering. Uh, and trembling at the foot of Sinai. And yet in this first foretaste of what it will be like to gather at Mount Zion, we see the people draw near and receive Mm -hmm. good news um, from the word made flesh. So, I mean, there's a lot of really cool comparisons, but I just wanted to point out that if we're following those connections between the Exodus story and the story of Jesus, story of Jesus is given to us um, according to particular um, images and timing because those connections are meant to be there for us to find.
0: So what is, in your mind, the proper role of the Ten Commandments for the Christian? Who are you talking to,
1: Kyle?
2: (laughs) I would still say the three that we highlighted, are the three uses of the law are the three uses of the law. They're a mirror of God and self. And that even kind of goes back to Calvin's description. These are the two mm-hmm. kinds of wisdom, knowing God, knowing yourself, loving God, loving yourself, also knowing your brokenness and your need for Christ. The civil law. I mean, I, I gosh, I don't want to live in a society that doesn't have civil laws set up for themselves. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to nationalize a religion or something like that. But mm-hmm. I know There's a huge conversation around that right now, and I'm not trying to get into it. I'm just saying, I want to live in a country that— No, that, let's go there! Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm not doing that. Well, like man i really i don't you know what i don't want to have happen i don't want to legalize murder like that's just that would be a mm, bad yeah. thing to do and agreed so that, that's what i'm yeah. uh, <laughs> and so so those are the things we want it to be a mirror of god and us we want it to, to use it to organize society so that we can live in a civil and just society mm-hmm. and we also want it to remind us of what god thinks is good and mm-hmm. uh, that, that it, it is it should be normative in the christian relationship with god and we have uh, my the point that i was also trying to make a minute ago Sometimes we contrast law and spirit. The spirit is the author of the law, and now the spirit indwelling us enjoys uh, us mm-hmm. being obedient to the law. He empowers mm-hmm. us to be obedient to the law. The, the mm-hmm. law and the spirit are not in contrast. The law and the spirit right. are meant to to be reflections of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And so for those of you who are listening and wanting to know more about this, what we're referring to is what's known as the threefold use of the law, if you Mm -hmm. want to read more about it. Uh, I'm gonna answer the question a little bit differently than JT did. I'm gonna focus on the three types of law that we find in the Old Testament that I think sometimes make it confusing to know how we relate to the law in the New Testament. So what we find um, at Sinai is the giving of the moral law and the 10 commandments, and then the giving of civil law, which was meant to govern Israel in a particular context for a particular time. Now, that um, that doesn't mean it has no application for us, but it means that you and I are not overly concerned about what happens if our ox falls into a pit that our neighbor dug, right? Well, speak um, for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My pugs. Yeah. So, uh, so you've got the moral law, the civil law, and then the ceremonial law, which are all of the laws related to clean and unclean, to the tabernacle, to how sacrifices are offered, to um, everything that you find in Leviticus and and elsewhere that has to do with how the children of Israel are to approach a holy God. So when you look at these three categories of law one of them, the civil law, is obsolete in its immediate application, but not in its general principles. And so in this, I might read the thing about my ox falling in my neighbor's pit. And even though I don't own an ox, I can still apply a general principle about restitution uh, to the way that I live my life today. Um, The ceremonial law, all of those laws about cleanliness and uncleanliness, we know that those were types and shadows that are fulfilled in Christ. And so that doesn't mean that we don't pay attention to them or there's nothing valuable to take from reading them, Mm -hmm. you know, like to say, well, these, these were designed the way they were for a reason. It doesn't mean they have no meaning for us, but it means that we don't still practice them because they were pointing towards something that is now fulfilled in Christ. And then God's moral law, which is the the what undergirds these other things is eternally true because it's an illustration of his eternal character. So, not only would we say that we are not beholden to it, we would say, Why would you not want to obey it? is a better yes. way to look at it.
0: That's exactly right. And I do think that, uh, it is part of the moral argumentation of Paul, even in Romans, which is a book that mm-hmm. you could, you could kind of use flagrantly to be like an anti-law kind of book, right? Mm-hmm. Of like a you know, and sometimes it is invoked that way. Like once you get past Romans five, Paul presumes that like the people that have heard him, uh, he presumes that they believe that following God is better than not, mm-hmm. and he starts to try to tell them how to do it. Like this is how mm-hmm. it's supposed to look. And I think that's really significant. I do think that a mark of Christian conversion, of experiencing grace and being welcomed into covenant is to say, This God who has welcomed me into covenant love, I bet he knows the best way yeah. to the good life. <laughs> it seems strange to me. I, and listen, I, I'm not, I, it, to me, it just seems strange. It does not seem like we have a holiness epidemic. In the Western church. (laughs) You don't
2: live in my house. (laughs) And And by that, I'm talking about Macy, (laughs) not me. So you're right, Kyle. We are are not, that is not a problem. I just
0: don't know if. It does seem like sometimes we're punching at Mm ghosts when we're like, well, you know, there's just this spirit of false religion where it's just all moralism now. And I'm going, well, maybe there was a time in which it was, Mm -hmm. but it definitely seems like that window has shifted and Mm -hmm. maybe it's time for us to start, I don't know, teaching our kids the 10 commandments. You know, it was largely a part of the discipleship architecture in the church for 2000 mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's a net positive that we said, well, we don't want to teach them law. Uh, one mm-hmm. of the things that I, that has always helped me, Jen, and you were talking about this at one point, and I don't know, we've had so many conversations. Sometimes mm-hmm. I don't know if we did it on a podcast, or if Each it was one in a of conference them precious room. to us. Yes. Right. It's true. Snowflakes, mm-hmm. snowflakes the lot of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you once said for a child you don't always give the child all of like the gray matter of the ifs and the what ifs. It's like, no, mm-hmm. the child just needs the law. They mm-hmm. just need the the admonition. Do this, don't do that. They're a child. Mm-hmm. And I think for a lot of Christian discipleship, we have complexified the simplicity of the law.
1: Yeah, well, I did probably say something like that with qualifications. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the point is that um, a very we we want to wait to tell a child to do the right thing until a child can understand why it is the right thing, and um, children learn by doing, and so that's why we train them to say please and thank you before they feel gratitude, um, because we know that they will need those words when the right motives do attach themselves, but that they need those words before the right motives attach themselves and. Um, some, I've sometimes reflected that while we can't raise Christian children, we can raise children who are moral, and we should at least do that because it's good for everyone. And so, you know, obviously, you, you never want to tell a child you're earning my favor or God's favor through your obedience, but you could tell anyone on the planet that when we live a moral life, all of us are better off. It's right. just true. I mean, that, you know, the, that, that's just true because— That's the civil use. Yeah, because God established these laws for our good. Um, but I, I do think, like, I think we may have touched on this in the, in the podcast capture at TGC, but, like, you know, when we think about heaven, a lot of people are like, yeah, heaven, I can't wait to get there because there will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. There will be no mm. more suffering. Well, the reason those things won't be there right. is because there will be no more sin, Mm-hmm. And the reason there will be no more sin is because we will all finally obey God's law. Like, that's, that is what the new Jerusalem is an embodiment of, is it's a place where God's law is finally obeyed perfectly by all of us. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so when you start thinking about that and you think, man, if I'm longing for that, how might I pass my time here as a sojourner?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: What if I live that way right now? Because it would be good for everyone who I come in contact with if I start living into that truth right now.
2: And that's one of the things that you hear. I've heard lots of pastors say, and they're they're not wrong, but they'll say things like, you know, this is the tension of living between two worlds, the already not yet, and they'll highlight. So therefore, let's live now the way we're going to live then, but they usually mean like, let's be. Let's party. Let's celebrate because we're going to yep. party with King Jesus. <laughs> yeah, or, yeah, yeah. and that's not wrong. I, I, yeah, I understand those I'm are gonna, parts they, of it. Yeah, that's part of it. What they very rarely say is, "Let's obey the law because one day we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna, yep. we're, gonna uh, we're gonna be able to perfectly mm-hmm. obey the law."
1: Mm-hmm. That's I right. I mean, like when you think about heaven being a place of delight, we should think of that verse: "I delight to do Your will, O Lord. Your law is written on my heart." That's going mm-hmm. to be on repeat on our lips when we are in heaven. Mm-hmm. That's
2: right. That's good.
0: That's right. Well, we're going to continue to explore the law um, as we look at uh at some of the law codes that come after the Ten Commandments. Um, we if you're looking for more on the topic of the Ten Commandments, um, I would really encourage you to check out uh Ten Words to Live By. Uh, <laughs> you're so weird. <laughs> <laughs> um it's a it's it's a book that does deal with the Ten Commandments, uh, or the Who Ten Words, that? if you will. Mm, I, don't uh, know. I think Yeah, I don't know. Um okay. I don't know either. But uh, you can, you, you know, where you can find 10 words to live by. You can find it at 10 of those.com slash partner slash knowing faith. Uh, we're happy to partner with 10 of Uh, we love what they're doing and they have set up a little bookstore for us where you can find books we've recommended, uh, over the course of the podcast and, uh, go check them out. And we've got books from every season of the podcast so far. So we would love for you to go and to take a look at that. If you heard mm-hmm. about other resources or products earlier in the show, check out the show notes for show notes for a link to our sponsors webpage. Or go to the Train the Church website under the Knowing Faith podcast to find resources, discounts, and other things that we recommend. While you're over at traininthechurch.com, if you want to take a look at the video uh, of our TGC breakout on discipleship, you'll get a little sample of what we do in the cohort. You can apply for the cohort at trainingthechurch.com. And the cohort runs in the spring and in the fall. Uh, applications are open right now for the spring. We are very confident it will fill up, but you can fill out an application. And if we can't get you in for the spring, we can get you in for the fall. We would love to help you think through building out deep discipleship models in the life of your church. We hope you enjoy the discussion today. Grace and peace. Did this episode spark an interest to learn more about Jesus, the Bible, or just theology in general? You can receive free theological training through Midwestern Seminaries for the Church Institute, where you can learn more about the Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, leadership, and more, even at your own pace. Learn more and get started today at ftcinstitute.com. Again, that's ftcinstitute.com for free training on Old and New Testament, Christian theology, preaching, and leadership. Go and check out these incredible resources from our season sponsor.